This episode is a special one because it's our first guest interview and it's with the one and only Pearly Tan. She's a Singaporean multimedia journalist and web editor for Facebook Business News, who currently resides in the US with her black American husband and two kids. In this episode, we talk about how she got started in the creative world of media, living abroad, her experiences of racism in the US, and her thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement and what we can do to become allies for our brothers and sisters of color and minority ethnic background in this fight for anti-racist justice. This was an incredibly insightful and intense episode, so I highly recommend taking time to further reflect about the matter on your own. Enjoy! Hello, we are Sri, Ash, and Chloe, young creatives with plenty to ask and plenty to share. We enjoy having open and honest conversations and want to share the stories of our journeys. So buckle up, we are Full Disclosure. Hello everybody to our podcast. This is a bit of a special episode because uh, we have a guest on here so far. So that's really exciting. Warm welcome to Pearly. Hi everyone. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yep. That, that's me. My name is Pearly. I'm currently living in Berkeley, California with my family. I'm, I am Singaporean Chinese and I'm married to a black American who happens to be light skinned, but I'll tell you more about that later. Um, we have two children, and it's really complex raising biracial children, and I'm just learning about it. Would have been much easier if I married a Chinese man and had Chinese babies. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, before we, we, we dive into that bit, I want to give like our listeners like a background story of you know uh, where you kind of started in Singapore and how you eventually got to the place that you are at right now, which is the US. You know, it seems like a really far jump, but uh, maybe you can kind of run us through your story for a little bit. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in Singapore. Um, specifically, I grew up literally on the 24th story of a HDB in Tobayo. I did not move at all in my life. And then the first time I moved, I remember. So after two years of working as a journalist in uh, Singapore Press Holdings, I moved to the Philippines to write about overseas foreign workers in the Philippines. And my curiosity from that stemmed because I was raised by Filipino maids, like most of Singaporeans. Um, what happened was my parents were both working in banking. I was raised by Filipino women who came and left every two years. I had no idea where they went. I wondered what happened to them. And they were really close to my heart because um, I slept with them. I slept with them in the same room. They raised me. They taught me how to... They taught me my alphabet. They taught me everything. Um, I saw my parents. Fair enough. I loved them. But um, these women were really important and I wanted to know where they went. So from the Philippines, I went to Tokyo, uh, where I worked for Fuji TV as a producer... And then I moved to Shanghai, where I worked with the Shanghai Cultural Center, documenting urbanization and the people left behind before moving to the U.S. And how, how I ended up 10,000 miles from Singapore, really simple. I looked at my resume and I had worked in, well, throughout Asia. I was also doing some financial translations for European banks and I didn't have anything in the U.S., 
So I literally looked at my resume and said, like, okay, well, there's a hole I want to fill. Like, everybody keeps talking about how, you know, it's America. And I'd never been to America. Um, I'd never been here. I'd never seen it. And so I actually came here about 10 years ago, did summer school at UC Berkeley, spent a lot of money um, over two months and used that as a benchmark to decide if I wanted to come here, to move here, to further my studies after graduating with a degree in communications at NTU. So that's how I ended up in at UC Berkeley, um, working on a multimedia investigative journalism graduate program for um, in in basically multimedia journalism. Wow, could I just quickly ask when yes. you were making that decision about moving like so dramatically from like Asia and like European context to America? Was there ever like? any kind of intimidation, fear, like especially for someone so young to be doing that, making that pivot, right? How did you feel like as you were going through that? Hmm. Uh, okay, this is the part where my parents won't be happy to hear, but it's unlikely to listen, listen to a podcast. So um, if you spoke to my parents, they'll probably tell you it seems as though I have no fears. I do have fears, but I do feel like there are things that need to be done. And so, for example, when I was working with the new paper in, in SPH, I, I know that I actually, I did a lot of investigative work. My specializations were in investigative features um, where I posed as a boy to um, lure out pedophiles in Singapore. Um, I have covered human trafficking in Singapore in Geelang, which also has great frog legs. Um, and... Um, and I've always done things like that. But I will say that one of the most outrageous things that even surprises me today is that when I moved to the US, the one thing I really couldn't understand was homelessness and how there were so many people everywhere, all over the streets. And um, if you ask me whether I had any trepidation, yes, I did. But I really wanted to understand the situation of homelessness more than I was scared. And so I made quite a few calls and insisted that I should be able to do it. And I moved into a homeless shelter for about two weeks and lived wow. there um, with the people. Because my main belief is homelessness is not a problem during the day. It's one of those problems that is not a problem when it's 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's the same as depression. Um, it becomes a problem when everybody gets off work. So it's unreasonable for anyone to write about it or talk about it or think about it if they've never done all that they can to get as close to the topic as they can. And for me, it really was just moving in. Um, of course, there were a lot of hurdles to jump. Um, UC Berkeley made me sign a form that basically said I waive all liability on them by moving into the shelter. Um, the homeless shelter made it really difficult. They tried to tell me that there was no space. And then they gave me a call back. They said, well, this uh, is really difficult and challenging. I said, it's okay. I'll bring my own sleeping bag. Yeah. About one day later, the, the managing director called me and said, okay, fine. We have a bed for you. And so she let, she let me move in. And I, I learned a lot from it. And I wrote a piece that subsequently won several awards. But at the core of my person... I feel a need to learn more about things that are not supposed to be happening and why they're happening more than I'm afraid. 
Because I actually believe, probably, at the core of me, that people are good. Nobody really wants to be bad. But people become bad, like, for whatever reasons. There are lots of stressors in all of our lives today. You touch base on a lot of um, really cool things and in terms of dealing with fear and, you know, having this sense of conviction that you are very determined in telling all of these stories that um, are perhaps not very apparent in mainstream media. So because most of our listeners, I guess, are young creatives or people within the the media field. So I just kind of want to like take it back a little bit and kind of figure out how did you figure out that uh, there's this need inside of you to tell and uncover all of these stories and how did you uh, identify media as that form of channel to share this these stories at uc berkeley my nickname was master of disaster because everything that would be beyond belief i would be able to encounter and experience it and live it and live to tell the story i was in um, my final year at week and we school of communications and information i was taking a course in photojournalism under Sham Tekwani, one of the requirements was to go out and take a photo, headshots of strangers. So I did, and I went to the places that I found uh, faces that were interesting. So I went to Little India. I just took the train to Little India. I walked around and I took photos and I met this guy. I saw him one Saturday morning. He was sitting on a bench. Um, he looked really fascinating, golden hair, um, dyed, obviously, and very interesting. So I took his headshot. I asked him if I could, and I took his headshot. And in return, I always do the same thing as a, phot- uh, as a photojournalist. What I do is I offer my subjects a print copy of the photo that I took of them. This man actually heard about my project. He told me he was actually a man who worked in the Singapore army and he washed Singapore army men's uniforms. That day he happened to be off. I took his headshots. I had a conversation with him and he brought me around Tekha Market to take photos of all his friends. So I made an arrangement with him. Two weeks later, I was supposed to meet him. He helped me carry my camera gear because I'm not a very big person. I'm about 157 centimeters tall and well let's not talk about my weight but um i'm not very big that's the problem so the amount of gear that i was carrying he really wanted to help me he was a very nice person well in my opinion he was uh we were at Tekka market and he was holding my lens when a group of men came over to him it was raining and they walked out into the rain and there was a bunch of gesturing and there was somebody who stuck out their hand and it had some white powder in it and there was some conversation and then they started beating him up and so after they beat him up they pushed him into a truck and i ended up having to call the cops because um a couple of the men who beat him up and pushed him into the truck i actually had photos of them that is kind of what probably my friends mean when they say i master of disaster i didn't do anything i didn't go out of my way i feel like i didn't go out of my way to seek problems but somehow i found in my hands the photos that i had for a just a regular photo class became became police evidence so that happened when i was about 21 um slightly over a decade ago for me but my life hasn't gotten less exciting since 
it's only gotten more exciting. This is shocking to me as someone who has uh is far from having such a interesting life like yours. I think your college schoolmates definitely weren't kidding when they called you uh, master of this answer. I don't even want to ask the next question, which is uh, what could have happened in when you moved to like the US. I'm sure like before you, you, you know, you moved out of Singapore, these sort of incidents were already kind of like popping up here and there. You're just like someone who seems like has a lot of really cool stories to tell. Touching base on like when you moved to like whether it was like the Philippines or the US, um, I guess like how did you sort of deal with all of this internally? Like, did you see this as something like traumatic or did you use it as like a an opportunity to tell a story? I'm going to say this again. I don't chase disasters. I do not. One of my earliest experiences in the US um, came when I was sitting outside the downtown Berkeley train station. It's a very crowded station because, sorry, there's a fire engine this really Lion exaggerates and adds a lot of drama to your story um right? yeah I so i live i live across from the fire station so my life is also very exciting um yeah so also i was very safe oh uh, i don't know yeah. i don't know if that's true yeah. so i was sitting outside a downtown berkeley train station with a friend who was black i don't usually suspect that people are up to no good so when i meet people i'm usually okay with them i was sitting beside this man uh, my friend who happened to be black and i'll never forget because the police officer came over and asked me if i was okay they literally asked me are you all right and i said i i think so i'm fine like, it was a very strange question for them to ask me, but I didn't think much about it until they turned to my friend and they asked him for his ID. I was surprised because at no point did they ask me for my ID. And then the police officer used his walkie-talkie to phone in to his colleagues and I heard them ask him if he has any warrants of arrest out for him. I was like, what a strange question. Like, why are you asking him but you didn't ask me? The injustice of it was the fact that they did not ask me. It wasn't the f only the fact that they asked him, but why not ask me? Like, I should be equally suspicious because the only difference between him and me really is that he's black and I'm not. And I watched as he... He got called in, uh, they tried to phone in to their colleagues and ask them if he, they had any reason to arrest him. And when there was nothing, they turned back to him and they said, you were lucky. Wow. It was surprising, it was horrifying, I was too shocked to really process it all. It definitely left an impression on me because I tell people this story frequently. Um, it is was probably my introduction to racism in America. Touching base on, on that, was that your first introduction to race and racism in your life or was that just in the US? I don't feel as though I've ever been a victim of racism in Singapore. Naturally, so you know, Singapore Chinese, you're part of the boring majority. And when you're part of the majority, it's very loud. You don't hear voices that are different from yours. And there is absolutely no space or reason for my Malay and Indian friends who were playing with at school to come and tell me that someone who looks like me did something really bad to them. But I have no doubt that they have ever have had experiences like that before. It's just that they probably didn't feel like they had a place to tell me. There's also a part I believe now that my friends probably felt like if they told me they would be burdening me. And part of the burden of racism, I realize, is that when you live it every day, you don't really want to talk about it. 
There's no reason to because that would absorb your life. You would not do anything other than feel really crappy. And that's not what anybody wants to do. I would say yes, that was probably my first encounter with racism. Like, nobody honestly has called me a chink before that. But in America, yeah, more than enough. Um, um, Call you all sorts of names as Chinese people. Um, But in Singapore, no. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Wolf whistles, cat calls. That's about it. Yeah, I, I think I find that interesting because it's like, on the one hand, yes, like we can say that Singapore is, in a sense, not as racist. But some would argue it's almost more dangerous that the racism is less visible. So I wouldn't agree and I wouldn't say that the, that racism in Singapore is more dangerous. Um, mm. I will definitely say that racism in America is more dangerous because mm. there is nothing more dangerous than being shot dead. For sure, like, yeah. I, I just can't. I just can't see anything more dangerous with them being shot dead. And the fact remains that when my husband goes out, I don't know who's pointing a gun at him. It could be anyone. It could be my neighbors who we know owns guns. <laughs> Um, it could be the police, who we know like to point guns at black men. Um, it could be absolutely anybody. It could be literally an old woman who we would never expect to be racist. I, I believe we haven't actually brought this up like so far in the conversation, mm-hmm. is that you are actually married to a uh, black American. Yeah, so that's where it gets a little bit confusing. So my husband is black American, but he's light, yeah. fair-skinned black American. So there are people who will say, no, there are not people. There are white people who will say that he's obviously not white because he's black. And there are black people who will say that he's not black. The troublesome part about it and the really difficult part about it that exists because he lives is the fact that every day if he has to look in a mirror, he ha- he is a product of someone having been raped. And that's just reality is the fact that someone along the lines his black ancestors was raped by a slave a white slave owner that's why he has fair skin just the other day we were sitting around and he was laughing about the fact that we as a couple i am a singaporean with a british accent and he's a black man with a white man's last name his last name is drayton so it's not something that anybody in singapore really has to think about the Chinese definitely don't have to think about it. I That's my privilege. I know where my ancestors came from. I know that they came to Singapore because of the Japanese occupation. I know at which point they came. I know that they have photographs. And in these photographs, my ancestors are not chained up. And that is reality for my husband. I I agree that racism really exists in Singapore. I hate the fact that nobody made it bother me when I was younger than this. The fact that I had to discover this and really think about it after I moved here. I hate the fact that nobody made it bother me. I believe that the responsibility falls on teachers to make it bother their students. Their students should be made uncomfortable. Chinese students should be made as uncomfortable as their classmates and their peers who are non-Chinese. Because if somebody else has to live with that discomfort all their life, no. Making you uncomfortable in the classroom is nothing. So while in Singapore, racism doesn't kill, I will definitely say that it doesn't mean that it doesn't traumatize people. It doesn't mean that it doesn't change the way people behave. It doesn't mean that... Okay, so a really simple example. A Chinese person in any departmental store, I bet... You've never had to stop to think about what you look like, whether you look like a suspicious person. 
the bottom line is people of color in Singapore, non-Chinese, when they go into a department store, they have to think about what they look like, not what they actually are. They could be the world's most honest person. But for whatever reason, based on their skin, somebody might actually be more... Um, uh, they they might actually have more reason to just believe that you might be a suspect um in shoplifting. You don't actually have to shoplift. You you just have to look like you might be shoplifting. And it really affects you when you know that more eyes are on you. More eyes are watching you. Can you imagine if everywhere you went somebody was watching you to wait they're waiting for you to trip up. They're waiting for you to make a really really tiny mistake. It's like, for example, in today's environment, you walked around and you sniffed and somebody says you have coronavirus. That's the equivalent. And that's what people in Singapore experience all the time when they're non-Chinese. And as a Chinese person, no, I, like, I bet that if I coughed, they'd, they'd glare at me, but they wouldn't cuss me out. They wouldn't say anything about my skin color. And that's where it's not fair. That's where young Chinese Singaporeans need to, they have a responsibility to anyone that they call their friend who is non-Chinese, they have a responsibility to change that. And when they see it happening, they have a responsibility to step in front of their friends of color and protect them. Mm. Yeah, so that's what I think. I think that it, it, it doesn't kill, but it definitely affects the community, the populations, it affects families, it affects the young, it affects the old, it affects the way parents raise children. Um, the bottom line is I can guarantee that I am not exposed to it and I'm not aware of it and I'm not a good person to comment on it but I guarantee you that Malay and Indian parents in Singapore have to teach their children different things things that Chinese parents don't even have to think about or talk about to their kids about um, and that's really sad it's if they have to talk about it the Chinese families should be disturbed by it only when we're disturbed by it can we not have it continue happening. Oh, that's a very fair point. Um, I did want to ask, so yes. like for context as well, like we didn't, uh, me, Chloe and Sri, because you're only hearing our voices, wonderful, mm-hmm. um, is that I am a Chinese Singaporean. Um, Chloe is Filipino and Sri is Malay. Um, I am actually interested to hear like from Chloe and Sri's perspective, right? Like, what what are, what are your experiences in terms of this like what what Pali has mentioned like is this like how how much of an impact has this had on like your upbringing and your experiences so far like in your careers in your just daily lives so like regarding the supermarket like going to the supermarket right as young as i was 6 i remember my grandma teaching me that when i go to let's say ntc or like uh, giant right i she always keep the receipt because they were suspect the that shop that we went to. Yes, and I cannot. Uh, my 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 parents would teach me don't open your bag in a in a store because they would think that you're putting something in your bag. So when you're shopping, only put things in your cart or put things in your like uh, recycle bag, you know. And like always have a receipt to prove that whatever you bought from the previous store is actually bought and you didn't steal it. So that's something that I thought was like normal. Like everyone thought te- teaches their kids that, so I didn't think much about it. But when uh, Polly brought it out, I'm just like, oh yeah. Things I learned, <laughs> well, actually, because of <laughs> systemic racism. <laughs> and the thing is, sometimes it's like you're not aware that of these differences because, like, sometimes you're only brought up in that one specific, like, I guess, racial context. Right? Well, like, Those were kind of like 
casually mentioned as things to be aware of, but it was never like a don't do this because you will actually have some major thing happen to you. Yeah, I think touching based on all of that, right, in terms of um, like what Pearlie has mentioned, she has, touch- she has touched based on a lot of pain points for uh, Singaporeans of uh, minority ethnic background. And there's a lot of cognitive distortion on our part because there's a, not a lot of stories that I can think off the top of my head right now that's like outright racism but microaggression yes one thing that I definitely wanted to ask as well what, towards police uh, what is one thing um, that you kind of grew up learning or knowing about racism that you've had to unlearn due to your current circumstances and lived experience and knowledge (sighs) okay so this is probably the biggest thing i didn't feel pressure to talk about it but i think that it was probably the biggest thing so when i met my husband i met my husband when he was at an event it was a green energy car event so just imagine lots and lots of cars that are energy friendly, sustainable, cons- like basically nice cars, expensive cars. And um, I was actually there because my friend uh, was supposed to cover the event. Uh, she just asked me to come along and I agreed. It was a Saturday. I had just arrived in the United States. I didn't have friends and I didn't have any events. So I was like, sure, let's get out. She has a car. I'll go for a ride. I'll get to see stuff. Um, I went to the event and my husband was sitting there. Well, no. Okay, let's change it. Brian was sitting there. He was sitting on a chair next to a bunch of bicycles. And I looked at that man. I was like, what is he doing? You know, the journalist in me, I was just curious. I was like, what is he doing? And so I did what I usually do. I walked over and I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, and he was really grumpy. We're talking extremely grumpy. Um, He said, parking bikes. And he was so grumpy that I thought to myself, well, this is not a man that I ever need to meet again. Like, you know, what are the chances, right? I just arrived in America. There's so many people in the whole of America. What are the chances? I don't need to see him again. So I decided to do exactly what I wanted to do. I pulled up a chair and I sat opposite him and decided that I was going to ask him any question I wanted to ask. I decided that I would ask him all the questions until I had no more questions and I was satisfied. Then I'll just leave. I didn't need to know this person. So I sat down. And I asked him question after question. I was like, why are you doing this? Like, what is this? And he explained to me that he was doing something that was like coat check for bicycles. You know how when you go to a bar, you put check in your coat, get a tag, and you go and dance and drink or whatever. And when you're done, you come back, you give the tag, you give some tips, and then you collect your jacket. Um, he was doing that for bicycles because people who are interested in energy-friendly cars were also cyclists usually because they're also uh, they want to basically take care of the environment after that in conversation i asked him hey like what did you think of me the first time you met me it's a very female question but so his response to me was it blew me away he said to me i was shocked that an asian woman walked over to talk to me because asian women don't talk to black men even more so, an Asian woman walking alone, and I was I was blown away because I didn't even I didn't even so that's that's my problem. I didn't even think about the fact that I was Asian and he was black. At no point did I even realize that he was black. At no point did I stop to think, oh, this man is not Asian, is not Chinese. So that is the beginning of the biggest problem that the environment in Singapore did a great job of doing it is not a problem that was set up in singapore the intentions behind it were not bad so governmentally in terms of the education in terms of the system in terms of even our hdb race allocation the government does a great job of making it such that 
people don't see race. Mm. I don't see color. The biggest problem with that is that I don't see color because it doesn't affect me. That's where the biggest problem is. So my husband agrees. It's amazing and ridiculous that I don't see color. Till today, I can walk up to a black person and I'll talk to them and I'll be like, yeah, he's a black person, but it may it has no consequence on my understanding or and it doesn't impair my ability to absorb what they've said or what they're trying to convey to me. Um, it is not the case with everybody. That's the problem. I realize that I have to see color by saying that I don't see color and by continuing to allow myself not to see color. I'm actually telling the people who don't look like me, I don't see you. And you're not important to me. Your reality is different, but I don't care because I am not bothered by it. You are the one suffering. I don't care about your suffering. And that's not me. I disagree with it. I do not allow it. That is the one thing. Not seeing color is only good if everybody doesn't see color. If even one person treats another person differently because of their skin color, you're not seeing color oppresses the person of color. Because what it really means is you don't see their struggles. And that's not okay. That is, I would say, the intention behind how Singapore developed that was to reduce the likelihood of a race riot happening. But we also have to remember that our leadership has historically a very Chinese-leaning so I would say we need not only to bring in more leaders of color into Singaporean leaders of color into leadership, not only that, but to make sure that they feel like they can disagree. Because I understand now that it is overwhelmingly intimidating to be the one person that disagrees all the time. It is frustrating. And nobody really wants to do that. Nobody constantly wants to, to uh, rock the boat. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is, don't all of you, don't all of us want li- to sit back and chill? Yeah, I want to sit back and chill. And there's no reason to, to think that, oh, well, they should just speak up about it. No. Like, the responsibility I begin to see now actually falls on the majority race to call the people who look like them out on their own stuff. Call them out on your own racism. Don't make um, the victims have to constantly tell you where you're going wrong. Um, it's very tiring. It's frustrating and it shouldn't be the case. Um, so it's really funny because in America, there is actually... Well, as you know, in America, there's a lot of racism that happens online. Facebook is very prevalent with lots of racism. Um, there's actually a group, a page called White Nonsense Roundup. Basically, if you see some white person doing some stupid thing, saying some obviously racist thing, they ask that you go in and tag white nonsense roundup. And the white people will come in and round up their own white people for talking nonsense. And that's what Chinese people need to do. Basically, the same thing. In reality, have a Chinese people roundup, Chinese nonsense roundup, because there are ridiculous, biased, prejudiced, unfair statements that i will safely say i have heard um said around me for example i was in primary school we were standing for the national anthem and right in front of me was an indian friend and somebody said oh don't stand you so, don't stand so close to her uh she she got kutu she got lice she has had lice there is absolutely no foundation for that 
and then everybody avoided this girl i i would safely say i mean um i'll be gentle on myself in the sense that i think i was seven years old um i didn't know better but now that i'm over 30 i should know better and i expect people who are over 20 to know better under 10 years old okay you might not know better, but someone around you, someone between 10 and 20, someone between 20 and 30, someone between 30 and 80, someone should be able to tell you that's not right. And I tell people all the time, really, if you really want to say that all Malays are lazy, all Indians are dirty, then all Chinese are cheats. All white collar crime is committed by Chinese. Is that accurate to say no? And and so it, we just cannot continue pretending that these things are whispered because there should be shame in saying these things. There should be shame when we hear these things. The But the people who should feel shame and fear are the people who actually say it and perpetuate it. Not the people who are the victims of it, you know? Like... I've, I'm it, like what really makes me mad is Malays shouldn't feel shame and try to have to work harder to prove to people that they're not lazy. That is not okay. Because if you flip the script on our family, how on earth is my husband going to work harder to prove that as a black man, he should live? Mm. Just because she, people don't get shot. Sorry, um, yeah. yeah, just because people don't get shot doesn't mean that change is not needed touching on that actually um you explored this topic more in depth with an article you did for the new paper actually recently uh a singaporean comes face to face with racism in the u.s um some of the points you brought up were actually like real proper experiences that you you experienced one of which is like where you said that you lied to your daughter when you asked when she asked whether or not uh, her her dad would be coming home like safely or alive even and another was you questioning whether or not you could even call 911 and expect help if, say, your husband were under a knee of a police officer. Like, when you think about these, like, these aren't moral dilemmas that most Singaporeans would even need to think or consider of, like, in our context. Sometimes you can't even comprehend it's like, this can even be happening to someone. When you had those experiences, right, like, how did it feel in the moment? Like, what, what, what was going through your mind? Well, okay, so when it comes to my family, um, my daughter's four years old, for those of you who don't know, she's four. Um, and I think it was probably about two, two weeks ago, she asked me, is daddy going to come home alive? And this was during um, the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, my four-year-old heard all these conversations. Um, when she asked me, it was really horrible. I just lied to her. It was just straight out. It was just a lie. I said, of course, he's daddy. But the bottom line is, the police don't care whether he's someone's dad. Um, and the fact is, they'll fire their guns faster than anybody can say that he's someone's dad. And that's just life in America. It is the fact that when you're, because of your skin color, because you're black... As you're walking down the street, you're afraid people, you're afraid that the police will shoot you. Whether or not you do good for the community and you become a business owner, it doesn't even matter. Because after that, when you approach the police, when they say black lives don't matter, yeah, black business owners' lives don't matter either. Um, nothing elevates you. You could be the most accomplished person. At the end of the day, they will still see them as black. And 
that is kind of the problem with um I feel that lies with Singapore too. That there are definitely people who look at our president and say she's just a Malay person and mm. and suddenly she's discounted. People talk about her as though she's a figurehead. And that's rude, it's disrespectful, and it is a bad representation for the younger generation. I hope my children don't at all believe that Malay people are any less leaders. If anything, I can guarantee you that Malay and Indian children in Singapore are tougher than Chinese. <laughs> By leaps and bounds. Like, the things that they have to think about, they're probably better critical thinkers too. The part that is unfair is the fact that they have had to think so much more and experience so much more stress while their parents are also stressed on their behalf. Raising a family under traumatic circumstances is really difficult and unfair. That's where racism is a problem. Chinese families in Singapore do not live with ongoing potential trauma. I think there's a lot of things to be said, of course, about uh the the racism in in the US and in Singapore and we still have a a lot of work to do and no one should be fooled into thinking that we are living in a post-race society um i think people are more so ignorant or maybe blinded by that here in in Singapore and like listening to police stories alone might you know, awaken some sort of a drive in, in, in one of our listeners. Because I can imagine, like, when I first listened to your story, it was definitely, it resonated a lot with me as someone who is of a minority ethnic background to hear someone actually, like, acknowledge all of, like, the, the, the different pain that we kind of, like, grew up in and also acknowledge that there is a lot of work to be done. And I think, you know, it's very commendable that, like, there's that self-awareness. Also, the fact that, you are now using your your platform and your passion to kind of speak out about it. But I guess um, for, our, for our listeners, there might be a sense of intimidation with approaching such hard topics like racism, be it wherever in the world or whether it's in their own backyard. So like, how would you recommend they support the cause? Or not even cause, like support their own friends in a way that they can do it in their own ways without actively being like, oh, you know, that's super racist. And especially uh, if they haven't been taught how to deal with such things uh, through their parental figures or whatnot, or in school even, like you mentioned with teachers. So is there anything that we collectively or even like people in, in maybe in like Singapore in particular can can do about such things in their day-to-day lives? Um, to begin with, I think that educational institutes need to set up systems where people can give, where students can give feedback if they notice systemic racism. Like it should be okay to point out without fear of repercussion that you notice a teacher using racist language. Um, I have memories of my teachers. I know there are Chinese teachers that have been really bad to my Indian friends. Um, no child should be afraid to say to another teacher, I saw this happen and it's not okay. It made me feel uncomfortable. And um, it's interesting because I think that's... Um, uh, a core Singapore value thing to not rock the boat to mind your own business and Stability. yeah and, but the big problem is all of this should be our business because if you really want to say that's your friend 
um, mm-hmm. friends actually know what other friends are going through. Um, you can't just witness abuse and say that that was terrible. I'm sorry that happened to you. No, sorry. Your thoughts and prayers really don't help anything. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I also probably belong to a really strange group of people. I believe that the root of everything has to really come from caring about other people, being kind to them, and trying your best to be a better person every day. And the beginning of the be- the beginning of trying your best to be a better person really is in how you are to your friends and your neighbors and not just people who look like you. Yeah. It's really interesting because one of the questions you asked me to think about was what uh what is my religious background, I think. Um I am one of those people who would say that I am Christian, but I'm very sure there are people who would say that I'm not Christian because my fundamental belief is Jesus or any other God, whichever God you choose to believe with, and because my father did study different religions before, he came to this conclusion and he told it to me. There is no religion that tells you to love people who look like you. Absolutely none. None of the religion says be nice to your neighbors because they agree with everything you say. Like every single person, every single God out there that someone has found to worship has had people disagree with them. They didn't, he didn't, whoever it is, male, female, whatever it is, they did not kill them. They did not let them suffer. The bottom line and the root of all religion for me personally is be a good human being. Take care of your friends and your neighbor. So... If young Singaporeans really want to do something for the movement, the global movement against racism and colorism, begin with being able to even recognize that I don't see color is a very dangerous statement because there are people around you. They could be your neighbor. It could be your best friend. It could be a child that you help to tutor there are people who cannot afford to say that statement. If they didn't see color, they could be in jail. Their parents could be in jail. It really easily. And when they go before a legal system where the judge and the lawyers and the attorneys are all majority race, you're right. They cannot not see color. And stop and think about the last time you were in a room where you were the only person of that shade. It's really important. To feel that and to understand that when you are a majority, you may not experience that. I did not. Um, But when you become minority, your minority friends have experienced that. Being the only person of that color and that language and that ethnicity in the room, it's intimidating. You don't want to speak up. You really want to hang back and merge into the wall. So create space. Hold space for your friends. The quieter they are, the more they haven't said. It's not that they haven't thought about it. They haven't said it. And think about why they haven't said it. The thing that I can possibly like mainly take away from this is that now that we know better, we can do better. And yeah, I think this should wrap up this episode. You've filled up so many um, points that I think uh, we really need to reflect on. And I hope this kind of helps not only us, but our listeners. And so, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much again to Pearlie for coming on to the show. I think that you, you've you shared has really been very insightful and just really grateful for, for you sharing your story here. 